Um, so many of you might not know uh, that uh, some some things about me, but if you were to hook a heart rate monitor up to me, you could probably interpret some things about me. Uh, particularly right now, you might uh, notice that my heart rate is elevated for some un, un, unknown reason uh, or maybe known. But also, you might not know that uh, in the event that I am resting somewhere and all of a sudden the, the power blips, uh, my heart rate oftentimes will jump and uh, some of you might be thinking, well, that's because he has a bunch of children and he's concerned what life would be like if there was no power in their house for any length of time. Well, that might be true. Uh, one of the things that uh, has, has caused that is a while back, uh, over 10 years ago, I worked at a manufacturing facility. And in that facility, as, as a technician there, I was trained that in the event of a power blip, there was a, a certain checklist that we had to run through very quickly because of the damage that uh, power blips could do. And so we were taught at, at any moment, if we were in the middle of a, a lunch break, if we were in the middle of working on something important uh, in our minds, we had to drop all of that and run uh, check off all of these things to make sure they were there so that we could save the company from um, certain uh, things uh, ruining themselves and causing thousands of dollars of damage. And so there is that, that training that happened in my life that is still there. So anytime that power blips, there's this instant uh, reaction I have because I have been trained and I have been programmed to respond in that way. And I'm sure many of you in this room have very similar training in your, in your idea and your mindset of the way in which you work. Um, and I would like to propose to you as we look at uh, these two parables uh, from the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be in chapter 18, that these parables are written in a way in which the Lord is trying to train us and He's trying to prepare us for the things that lie ahead of us in our lives so that when we are hit with different things in life, we are better prepared to handle them. Uh, and, and the idea that, that comes from that, where we get it, is if you look at the context before we get to chapter 18 of Luke, there is chapter 17. And if you glance at one of the titles there in your Bible, it would talk about the kingdom of God. And so the context in which we are approaching the scripture is in the understanding that we are in a gospel, the gospel of Luke. And Jesus has just been asked a question by the Pharisees of whether or not uh, they will know and how they will know that the kingdom of the Lord is at hand. And so Jesus goes through explaining this to them and also to the disciples. And so he is moving into this discipleship uh, aspect. And then we turn in, in chapter 18 to this idea in which Jesus decides that he is going to take two um, stories and he's going to tell them in a way in which he can communicate more clearly to his people. He wants, um, he wants them to understand the seriousness and for them to be prepared. This is, this is his aspect to the checklist that he is, he is giving to them so that they can be prepared. Um, just so you're aware of, of how we will approach uh, this text this morning, uh, there's an outline in your, in your um, bulletin, but we're going to look at each of these familiar parables independently, and then together uh, at the end we'll, we'll apply some. But um, for, for those that are like my wife that like to have little handholds and figure out where we're going, uh, we're going to read the parable, or we'll try and understand the purpose of the parable, 
Uh, we'll look at the different characters, and then we will try and apply uh, the lessons of that parable to our own lives. Um, so with that in mind, let me read uh, the first parable about the persistent widow, and this is God's Word. We're looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. Thus ends the reading of God's word. One of the things that's interesting about both of these parables that we're going to be looking at um, that is kind of helpful to understand is a lot of parables that Jesus used, um, he would wait until after the parable to explain them and give the purpose for them. But at the beginning of both of these parables, Jesus makes it very clear of the purpose of the parable. And so what is the purpose of this parable? I I believe he identifies it very clearly in verse 1 that he wants his disciples to always pray, and he wants them to not lose heart. And so those are are very clear things that we can grab hold of. And he also uses two very clear characters. The first character that we're introduced to is a judge. Many of you in this room maybe have appeared before a judge, and when you read about this judge, it is not the type of judge that you would like to appear before. And there's a few reasons for that, a reaction why we wouldn't want a judge that neither fears God nor respects man, is the reality that those are the bases in which you would want a judge to operate in. In that day, in that history, the judge was to considered to fear the Lord because that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the way in which a judge would be able to base all of the rules off of in which he was supposed to judge. This judge doesn't fear the Lord. Um, There's also the aspect that if a judge, um, that we have judges in our own uh, governmental system that would probably say they don't fear the Lord, but they at least respect man. And so they would be willing to give justice to men because they respect them. This judge is identified here not only once but twice that he does not fear God and he does not respect man. And so there is this instant understanding that we have that this widow, the next character that we are introduced to, is up against quite a challenge. Uh, She is facing some difficulties in life because she has lost her husband and she has an adversary that is coming up against her. We haven't been told a whole lot about what's going on, but we know in in that culture and that history Uh, teaches us that uh, widows were in a very um, fragile state when it came to the the court system in that day and age. 
You couldn't just, as a, as a woman, go and walk into the courts and, and get the justice that you would expect. You needed to be represented by a, some form of male uh, family member, uh, which she apparently doesn't have because of being a widow or uh, the circumstances she's in. And your only other option that you would have is to be able to, if you had wealth, to be able to hire an an attorney to come and represent you before the judge. And so we see that this woman is in a very helpless state where she can't use either of those resources and that she is is against an adversary. So that is the, the kind of picture in which we are introduced to these characters, but we also see that this widow doesn't rest there, that she comes up and formulates a plan in which will help her to be able to find this justice. And so we, we know this familiar story that she persistently seeks out this judge, and she is asking him over and over again, Judge, will you give me justice against my adversary? We could imagine that she formulated a way in which her, her whole life would be formed around this. She would look for an opportunity, maybe in the morning, as the judge went to the courts, uh, to find him along the way. We could see that maybe at a, at a break, sometime in the middle of the courts that he was, he was overseeing, that she would find a way to interject into that. Or maybe in the evening when he was out for a stroll or he was uh, doing something different, that she had figured out how to go and to plead over and over again before him. And the Greek, uh, while studying this, it's interesting that the judge's response is, yes, she's bothering me, but there's stronger language than the ESV translation gives here, that actually she is coming with so much force that this this judge is confused and, and, and afraid that basically that her words are going to bring him physical harm. And so while he neither fears God nor respects man, he's willing to provide justice for this widow because of what she is continually pleading with him over. And so we see in the end that Jesus takes this uh, to his, his elect and says, there's a great uh, encouragement here. There's a promise for us that, that Jesus is reminding us that God hears the prayers of his elect and that he will answer them and he uh, will also do it speedily and that he will find faith in the end. And so there's this, this great promise that he ends with. And so with that kind of synopsis, with that understanding of who the character is, are and in the parable itself, uh, let's look at a few ways in which we can apply this to our own lives. And if we look um, at the meaning of this parable and what Jesus is trying to train us in, I think these are both really good application points for us. The first is how to pray persistently. Uh, When we look at the widow's um, way in which she approaches the judge, it's very helpful for us to recognize in our own lives that this woman, uh, this woman um, used what she had uh, available to us to be able to go to the judge. She looked at her life and she uh, organized her life around uh, the, her, the, the schedule of her life to be able to go and to address this judge. She didn't spend uh, her time uh, talking with other individuals, trying to scheme around different ways in which to approach this. She knew and she had an understanding of her frailty in life, and she knew that the only person that would give her the relief that she needed against this adversary was this judge. And so in our own lives, how we can apply this 
is we should ask the questions of ourselves, are we actually praying? Oftentimes in the busyness of life, we uh, will pick up our phones and we'll start researching things or we'll start gathering other people together and say, I need wisdom on how to do this. And, and at first that seems like a good idea and oftentimes is a great idea, but we often forget that we need to move that into prayer and actually pleading with the Lord. But we also see here that this woman continually understands that she, un, that she needs this judge to act. And so she is going with this forceful way in which she is pleading with the Lord. And so that's um, a great reminder to us of how we need to, over and over again, build our schedules around uh, pleading with the Lord when we are confronted with the injustices and the difficulties in this world. But we also see here that Jesus wasn't just teaching his disciples how to pray, but he has paired these two together where he's telling his disciples not to lose heart. And while there's this promise at the end that Jesus is reminding us that the Lord will hear our prayers and that he will answer them, and in the end, when he returns, that he'll find faith on earth, I think that there's something of a reaction that we have as we hear this parable that makes it kind of awkward for us. There's this uh, uh, weird comparison that Jesus, only the Son of God, could use to compare an unjust judge and God. But then there's this language at the end about how when we cry out day and night to the Lord, uh, He will answer our prayers speedily and that He will give justice. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, or you've known a Christian for any length of time, you start to wonder exactly what God is saying here. Because in our own minds, in our own lives, we oftentimes question this. We oftentimes have this tendency to lose heart because we have seen difficult things come into our lives and our natural response sometimes is to pray, but afterwards we're wondering and we're left questioning whether or not God is going to hear our prayers or whether or not He's going to fulfill what He said He would do. And I think that is a natural response. I think it is a good question for us to ask. And even if we read through the Psalms, we see psalmists doing the same thing where they're, they're in the, the pits of despair and they're crying out to God and asking, why, Lord, are you, are you doing this? Why are you allowing injustice to happen in this world? And so while that is a, is a good question, how do we not lose heart in this? How do we identify the heart issues at play that, that are bringing those questions about? And I think what we need to recognize in this is that oftentimes in those moments when we are tempted to lose heart, it's because we have done something in our minds that we oftentimes don't recognize, where we understand that in a court system, the judge has the authority to make things happen. And so we have, we have read the scriptures this morning. We have recognized that God is holy and that he is over all of this, this world and that he has all the power. What our hearts and what our minds do is we, instead of going into the Lord's courts to ask for justice, we take the Lord and we bring him down 
and we put him in our courts. Instead of us looking to the Lord and using his word to judge our actions, we start judging the Lord's actions. We start putting ourselves in the place of the Lord, and we start saying, Lord, if you loved me, you would do these things. If you really heard my prayers, this is the way in which you would answer them. And so we see that that quickly transforms our hearts into this way in which we are building ourselves up and we are filling ourselves with pride and our prayers uh, cause us to actually lose heart because we are no longer trusting in the Lord, we're trusting in ourselves. And interestingly enough, it's, it's as though the Lord knew that that's where our hearts would go because that brings us to our, the next parable. And this next parable Um, is speaking to how we are to humbly come to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Let me read it for you. It's Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is God's Word. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to, the, to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And so as we transition into this parable and think about how God is calling us to be humble, we see in that verse 9 clearly what Jesus is trying to communicate to. He's trying to awaken those that are putting trust in themselves and treating others with contempt that this is a dangerous place to be, that there is a warning at the end of this of how you will be justified if you have this type of trust in yourself. Um, In this, uh, one of my major concerns as I tried to prepare for this is uh, oftentimes when we are confronted with the idea of being humble, we start to think of the other people that need to be humbled in our midst. We think of the people that come to mind instead of ourselves uh, that that need to be humbled. Uh, We sound a lot like uh, this Pharisee's prayer But I think it's very interesting the way in which Jesus is particularly vague in the opening of this parable. In my mind, I I would always imagine that Jesus is saying this parable to the Pharisees. But we can understand as we read it that Jesus leaves it vague, I think, for a very important reason. That he is opening this up for anyone who's putting trust in themselves. So that would mean the Pharisees. That would also mean the disciples that are hearing it. But it also means that it's for you and me who are reading it later in life, that this parable is for everyone who has that tendency in which they are going to build themselves up and they're going to wrestle with pride. I think one of the best quotes I heard as I was wrestling with this text was the the reminder that, that pride is one of the most difficult sins to choke out. And the reason is that pride will grow in anything. 
And so with that mind, I would encourage you, with that in mind, I would encourage you to use um, this time to, to reconcile that this is for you. And while you might be thinking of somebody else that needs to hear this, this is for each one of us individually. And so we're introduced uh, to two different characters in uh, this, this parable, just like the last. Um, and we're going to look at each one of their characters and their prayers, and then we'll look at some of those different applications from each prayer. The first character we're introduced to is the Pharisee. Um, we know throughout the Gospels there is plenty uh, to know about these individuals. And while I would love to go in depth to all the different things, I think one of the best ways to describe Pharisees is they were concerned with everything on the outside. Their desire was to do everything uh, according to the law so that they could be found uh, righteous before the Lord. They would do everything um, possible on the outside, but they always neglected the heart, and Jesus continually called them out for it. And we see that in the, this first prayer. We see it in the prayer of the Pharisee, that here he is, and if you look at it, the number of eyes that this contains. We see here that it's, it's lifting up this man. He talks about how he fasts. He talks about how he does all these other things and how he's not like all these other things. But one of the things that we see very quickly in this, um, in this prayer is that he's not praying it to the Lord, but he's actually praying it to himself. We also see that in his posture, in the way in which he is delivering this prayer, he is in the, probably in the center of the temple, probably during one of the times of prayer at the three o'clock hour, in which he is probably standing up with his hands raised, with his head lifted up, and his eyes towards the heavens, and he's declaring these things out loud so that everyone can hear and that they can learn from him. This is this picture of somebody that is, is only engaged in themselves. And so I think as we look at this prayer, we can use it as a diagnostic tool for our own prayer lives, and particularly our own hearts, and whether or not we are humbly praying before the Lord. And I think the way in which we do that is we look at this prayer and we see it in contrast uh, to other prayers. We look at this as we look at the Lord's Prayer, and we see that this prayer contains no adoration towards God. There is no recognition of the holiness of God here. And so in our own prayer lives, do we recognize God is holy in there? Do we lift him up? Oftentimes we say that, but does that contain, is, do our prayers contain a large majority of adoration? We also see in this prayer that there is a confession. There's this confession that this man is comparing himself to others and that he's better than them. Uh, when we read the Lord's Prayer, when we use the Acts prayer model, we are reminded to confess to the Lord our sins. We are reminded that we are a sinful people. And so we take those to the Lord asking for uh, to be able to repent and to turn from them. And so as we look at this prayer, we see that this man only spends his time comparing himself to others. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes that's often how I defend myself as I begin to confess the, before the Lord. I start confessing my sin, but then I, I instantly start comparing myself to other people and how really I'm not that bad, but the reality is that I am. And so those are, are wonderful ways looking at that prayer in which we can diagnose whether or not we're coming, coming humbly before the Lord and whether or not we are trusting in ourselves when we pray. I think the other wonderful gift that the Lord gives us in this, as he gives this parable, 
but he also gives us, through the tax collector's, tax collector's prayer, how to grow and trust in the Lord in prayer. And so if we look at the tax collector's prayer, we identify quickly that this is a prayer to the Lord. It's interesting how Jesus chose to identify and introduce us to the character through the Pharisee's prayer, but we are introduced that this man has a different posture. He is not in the center of the temple. He is not in the midst of people, but he is on the outskirts. He's on the edge because he does not feel as though he can come before a holy God. His behavior and the way in which he is casting his eyes down, the way in which he beats his chest, which is a sign in which he is, is overwhelmed with the sin that ha- he has been confronted with, is ever apparent in his posture. But we also see that he um, and, and others that would look around would, would look at him quickly and say, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily want to be around this man, but this man didn't recognize or care anything about anyone else. There was no comparison here, but instead he knows that he needs to be right before God. So as we read his prayer, it's very short. It's very simple. It's God be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's a wonderfully simple, but as you look at it, this idea of mercy jumps out very clearly here. As we look at it, it's beautiful in the ESV, this cry for mercy. But in the Greek, it's even more beautiful because this man is not just crying out specifically for mercy. The literal translation of the word mercy here is different than most of the times, but it is is basically translated, mercy seat me, O Lord. And so there is this beautiful richness that this man is acknowledging before the Lord, his understanding that he needs atonement, that he needs the mercy seat of the Lord because he is such a sinner. And so while oftentimes this is language that we use, it's, it's sometimes easier for us to simplify it. This man understood that he was a sinner. He knew that he had nothing to offer the Lord, that he had sinned in multiple ways. He used his ability as a tax collector to extort money from God's own people. He probably used that to live a lifestyle that was, was not looked up on by all those in that culture, but he also knew that in his heart, he sinned against God. Those Ten Commandments weighed heavy upon him, and he knew over and over again every time that he made a thought that he was confronted with God's holiness and he was confronted with his own sin as he cries out and beats his chest. And so there is this reality in which he knew that he needed forgiveness. The mercy seat brought forgiveness to him, would bring it. That's what he was wanting. It would mean that all of his sins would be washed away and that he would have his record removed. And so that is a a glorious thing in which he desperately wanted. But when we talk about the mercy seat, he's not just asking for forgiveness. In our Sunday school class this morning on uh, we talked about the Day of Atonement and how Jews thought that there was this idea that if you, if you fulfilled the Day of Atonement the way you were supposed to and fasted the way you were supposed to, that it would wash away all of your sins and that you would then be able to march forward and be able to please the Lord. But this man knew that that, that wasn't a, an, a possibility, that even with his sins completely removed, he still wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord because he had nothing to offer. And so he, as he cried out for the mercy seat, 
was crying that his sins would be removed, but even more so, or even on top of that, that that the Lord would bring a a sacrifice that would cover him with the blood. He was looking to Jesus' perfect works. He was looking to this idea that he needed God's, uh, Jesus's righteousness to be applied to his record. Having just your, your, your sins wiped clean isn't enough. You need both parts, that double imputation, the reality of, of both of those. And so this is what this man is crying out for here. And I think it is a great model for us in which we can be encouraged and we can trust more in the Lord in our own prayer lives. Because as we look at this, if you truly believe that, that idea of the gospel, if you believe that you have nothing to offer the Lord, it instantly humbles you. It brings you into the relationship with the Lord and where you're able to cry out to the Lord as this man did, and you're be able to remind yourself over and over again that only through the power of the work of God that you are able to come even to Him. And so there is this wonderful aspect in which Jesus makes a wonderful promise at the end. He promises that this man will go home justified. And so for us as believers, there is this encouragement that even in these times where we don't feel like we can pray, even in the the difficult times in which our prayer lives are revealed that we are a selfish people, we can come again to the Lord and we can be reminded in it. I think there's a tendency oftentimes in our Christian lives where we would like to think that we can get to a certain point and then we can make it the rest of the way. But over and over again, we need to be reminded that the gospel is not just for salvation, but it is to live day in and day out. I think there's also a very important warning here. For many in this room, you might be looking at this and saying, I don't really see the need for any of this. I don't see the need to be justified. And Jesus is, is making it very clear that there is only two pathways. There's a pathway for those that trust in the perfect works of Jesus, and there's a pathway for those that deny it. And the way in which when, jo- when God comes to judge this world, and when the kingdom of the Lord comes, these two ways will be judged. And so if you are trusting in your own works this morning, I'd ask that you would consider the prayer of this tax collector, that you would cry out to the Lord in the way he does, and that you would recognize that there is a holy God that is in, in ruling over all of this earth. Okay, so how, with these two parables, how do we, how do we sandwich them together And how do we use this in our own lives um, together? How do do we kind of land the plane now that we know that both of these are there? And I think it's particularly interesting that I never really thought of this when I thought of the first parable. But um, it's interesting how Jesus is preparing these, training these these disciples, and for anyone that's reading this, uh, for what's to come. He's training them particularly for hardships. And I think of, uh, just for a moment, consider with me what the disciples are going to face in the near future. Think of what they will be faced with and possibly lose heart over, things in which they might be diverted from prayer in. Think about the night in which the Lord was betrayed. Think about the judge that he went before. How would you describe that man? Was he a judge that feared the Lord? Did he have regard for man? 
And I think for me, that's the point in which it starts getting very real. It starts to recognize that Jesus is preparing his people for difficult times. He's also preparing them for good times. And I think as, as we apply this together in our own lives, I think he wants to remind us over and over again that the gospel is, is a wonderful thing that can bring us hope and allow us to keep heart. And so we need to recognize and ask the question over and over again in our minds, is, is our prayer life ready for what tomorrow brings? And so are we trained in a way that, that when good things happen, we rejoice and we turn to the Lord and say, look, he answered our prayers. He did these wonderful things for us over and over again. Wow, this is great. I will pray for other people that are in difficult times. But then there's also the circumstances in which you get that phone call, whether it's four o'clock in the morning, like our dear sister this morning got, or whether or not it's during the week in which you are trying to prepare for a sermon and you get hit with this heavy load in which you are just so burdened that you don't understand or know how you'll be able to take the next footstep, that you're prepared. Instead of doubting the Lord, you won't lose heart. Instead of questioning whether or not God is doing the things that you think he should be doing in your life, you instead will look to him and say, God, you are clearly better. Your will is definitely better than mine. And so I will trust in you. I will be like this widow and I will continually plead with you until you do as you have been, as you promised you will do to us. So to close, my hope is and my prayer is that we will more fully understand our weakness and that God's mercy in God's mercy, and that we will be a people that persistently and humbly comes before the Lord in prayer. If you would please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a, is a beautiful picture and a great reminder to see a man who is overwhelmed with his sin, to see a man that is confronted with your holiness and responds in the way that you have called us to. Lord, we're even more thankful that there is a way and there is a hope. There is an ability in which your gospel, the way in which your son lived the perfect life, died, rose from the grave, and is now interceding for his elect. Now, so Lord, we pray that you would be with hearts in this room that maybe don't know you. Lord, that you would prick their hearts this morning, and we pray that you would be with those including myself this morning, that I think that this maybe isn't for me. And Lord, we pray that we would humbly come before you, that we would recognize your goodness and your mercy poured out upon us over and over again. And Lord, that that would fuel our prayers and that we would be a people that persistently pray to you. In your heavenly and awesome name we pray. Amen.